to Anorak, the happy podcast for kids. We have jokes, we have questions, we have experts and we have tons of fun. Off we go, under the sea. Hi, my name's Teddy and I'm six years old and I live in England. I would definitely go under the sea by swimming or going in a submarine. I think what lives under the sea is loads of creatures that know to swim, like dolphins, sharks, whales, turtles, jellyfish, seahorses or fish. I love under the sea because all of the animals under there know how to swim. And I really enjoy swimming, and swimming makes you stronger. My favourite undersea creature is definitely whales and sharks. My favourite shark is the tiny shark over, and it's as big as, a f- as your hand, and it eats fish. And also there's another one that's pretty big, and it's got loads of brown scribbles on it. What I call it is a scribble shark. Hi, my name's Ellie. I'm a scuba diver. I'm also the co-founder of Luna Dive School, which is a dive school that gets more women into scuba diving. My name is Jack, and I'm four, and and I live in the United States of America. What did you find under the sea? Where do I begin? I found another world. I don't know if you've watched The Little Mermaid, where The Little Mermaid really wants to go up onto our world and see what's going on there. It's the other way around for me. Just like in The Little Mermaid, all fish have personalities and different ways of being in the water and different friendship groups and things they like to do and they like to eat and different behaviours. And the more you get to spend under the water with them, the more you get to know them and understand them and feel lucky to be able to see all of that underwater. Over 70% of of our Earth is covered in ocean. And when you're in there, you're only just seeing a tiny part of it. So every little bit of time you get underwater is just an opportunity to find a little bit more about the ocean. Have you ever been pinched by a crab? I've actually not been pinched by a crab. There's lots of things in the ocean that could bite you and they're probably not the things that you think are going to bite you. So lots of people when they think about the ocean think about sharks or big things like, you know, sharks or barracuda or things like that. But those aren't really the things that you need to look out for pinching you or nibbling on you when you're underwater. Um, It's usually the very small, small fish that really want to have a go at you, to be honest. So I have been nibbled by some other fish. There's a fish called a cleaner ass and they just want to clean you. They actually clean lots of other fish in the ocean, including sharks and, you know, big rays and whales and things like that. And they usually live on cleaning stations. So all the cleaner ass and cleaner shrimp all live in the same place and they'll go and clean turtles and sharks and all kinds of fish. But if you kind of sit in the same place for too long by a cleaning station, then they'll think that you're there to be cleaned and they'll have a good nibble on whatever they can get their hands on or their teeth onto on your leg or your hand or whatever it might be. And then there are some other fish which can be a bit territorial. So they're only maybe 10 centimetres long at the most. They're really small, but they're super territorial and they really want to 
get you away from them and they'll often come up and give you a little nip on the leg or something nothing that will like scare you away really because they're so small but yeah nothing too big not being pinched by a crab what kind of horse swims underwater a seahorse Hi, my name's Oscar and I'm eight years old and I live in England. How small is the smallest creature in the ocean? The smallest creature in the ocean probably can't really be seen by us when we're in the water. There are lots of tiny, tiny little microscopic things in the ocean which are really important to the health of the ocean and they act as food to creatures that are next up on the food chain but also some of the biggest creatures in the ocean as well. So there's a creature in the ocean called phytoplankton that along with krill which is a tiny form of shrimp actually I think together they weigh more than any other creature on land. They are the biggest population of any animal in the world and they're these tiny little microscopic creatures in the ocean and they do a lot of amazing things to create more oxygen so they use photosynthesis to create energy for themselves and create oxygen for our oceans but I've not seen that underwater because they're so small you can kind of feel them sometimes underwater because they make you a little bit scratchy sometimes. Hi my name is Minomre and my name is Eliodore. I am six nearly seven years old and I am ten years old. We live in France. Which shark goes the deepest under the oceans? There are quite a lot of deep diving sharks. I did have to do a bit of research for this one. So the shark that I think goes the deepest or we think goes the deepest is the whale shark which is the largest fish in our oceans. It's the biggest shark that there is. It can grow up to be 15 metres long. It's bigger than a double-decker bus. It actually eats the tiniest things in the ocean. It eats phytoplankton and krill, which is quite funny considering how large it is. But very little is known about whale sharks when they leave part of the ocean that we get to inhibit within like, the first you know, 50 metres or so where we're going recreationally diving or a little bit of technical diving. But some whale sharks have been fitted with trackers and they think they get to depths of about 6,000 feet which is the deepest they think that, you know, any shark really has got to. They think that perhaps whale sharks are going there to mate or to give birth. There's been no known sites of where whale sharks go to give birth. They're very mysterious creatures. So I think that's probably the deepest, but they don't live there. There are a few sharks that do live quite deep, but not as deep as a whale shark dive. So they've got some fun names, though. There's the six-gilled shark. Most sharks have five gills, but six-gilled shark has six. There's the frilled shark, which has almost like a frilling around its mouth. There is the goblin shark, which is probably one of the ugliest sharks you'll ever see. And the final one that lives... Um, around the same depth is the cookie cutter shark and you can find the mouth prints of cookie cutter sharks on the side of whales and they look like a cookie cutter has been dug into the side of a whale like a perfect little circle because that's what their mouths are like and all of those sharks live around 4,000 feet so still 2,000 feet shallower than the whale shark which dives down to 6,000 feet. Why are the sunfish's fins This was a very interesting question that I did a lot of reading on. I have been taught some things about 
sunfish in the past. Sunfish are also known as mola mola, which is another cool name for them, I think. The short answer is that's just the way that they've evolved. If you actually look at a baby sunfish or a picture of a baby sunfish, it looks just like a normal fish. It looks quite a lot like a puffer fish which is it's very closely related to. But as the sunfish gets older and gets bigger, it actually has the biggest size change out of any creature. It increases in size by about six million times. It goes from something that's maybe, you know, three or four millimetres long up to two tonnes in weight and uh, up to five metres wingspan, which is pretty amazing. So the back of its body, which connects to the caudal fin or the tail fin, it basically just connects in one big block. And the tail fin, which usually is used for propulsion, so that goes for sharks to fish, the tail fin is usually what pushes the fish through the water. Instead, on the sunfish, theirs is way more connected to the body and it acts more like a rudder to kind of give direction to the way the sunfish is moving in the water. And instead, its dorsal fin, which sticks up from its head, and the anal fin, which is the fin that comes out from its tummy down, are these really elongated, almost like wings, which, you know, are these funny shapes that you're talking about. And they actually flap them a bit like wings. So imagine it's a stingray or a manta ray, but just instead of where it's swimming horizontally, it's swimming vertically and it can fan its fins like that. But it can go really fast still. You might think that they're quite slow creatures because a lot of pictures of them are only really seen when they're at the surface but apparently they can flap their fins so fast they can go as fast as a penguin underwater which is really quick underwater and when they're at the surface that's such a small portion of their lives they're usually there just warming up their bodies before they dive down deep to eat jellyfish um, which is the main part of their diet and you have to eat a lot of jellyfish to weigh two tons but at the surface they're usually there to get warm and then have all their parasites eaten off them by cleaner fish like those cleaner rats we talked about or sometimes even some seabirds will come and perch on them and nibble off the parasites which is a very cool uh, relationship between ocean creatures and non-ocean creatures. How many tickles does an octopus give you? Answer, 10 tickles. <laughs> Hello, my name is Demarcus Robinson. I am a PhD student at UCLA. I study atmospheric and oceanic science, and I do research in the ocean, and I mainly research oxygen minimum zones, so these are areas in the ocean that do not have oxygen. That's kind of what I do, and so on a day-to-day basis, I am either in class or I'm in the lab doing um, some analysis. I look at microbes that are in the bottom of the seafloor, and so these microbes live on the seafloor, they do different types of metabolism, so they eat different types of like chemicals and things like that. So some microbes eat oxygen, some microbes eat sulfide that's in the sand or in the seafloor or the sediment, that's what we call it. And uh, we use different types of instruments to kind of analyze it. We need to and study this because it's important um, in these areas, which are oxygen minimum zones. They're predicted to expand because of climate change. And so it's very important to understand what is the kind of the feedback between like the ocean water column and then what is happening also in the seafloor because 
when we always think about the ocean, we may just think of like the larger animals, but a lot of the processes that allow for these larger animals to happen come from these smaller processes from these microbes and phytoplankton. Um, they kind of determine how everything else happens. And so in these oxygen minimum zones with where they consume oxygen and other metabolism start to happen, it's very important to, to understand what is happening, how is it happening, and how is this affecting other aspects of the ocean. Hi, my name's Oscar. Why are there stones in the ocean? Um, so the reason there's stones in the ocean, the main reason is come from this uh, concept called erosion. So erosion is kind of an eroding way of material. And so this happens from like wind erosion. So you have wind that comes and blows over a surface. Eventually that wind creates friction and it deteriorates like a big chunk of rock. So like you think of a land mass or like a mountain, uh, eventually that mountain gets smoothed over because of wind. These big chunks start to form smaller chunks and smaller chunks and smaller chunks. This happened the same way in the ocean. Ocean also erodes away large rocks and these start to turn to go from big rocks to smaller rocks to uh, finer things. And sometimes the rocks they go through streams and waterways and eventually they find themselves in the ocean and over time they accumulate. And so that's why we see like pebbles. And when you go to the beach or if you see uh, pebbles from, I guess if you're looking at a video that shows the seafloor, you'll see pebbles there. Hello, my name is Livia and I am eight years old. I live in the United Kingdom. Why is it sandy at the bottom of the ocean? The reason why it's sandy at the bottom of the ocean comes from the process called erosion. And so when you start to erode away bigger stuff, they gets finer and finer and finer. And so the last step of, you know, going from big to small is sand. So in, in a sense, you can think of going from a big mountain and all the way down after just like pounding away and, and, and eroding away, you start to have finer and finer things. And so the finest scale that can get to is, is sand. There are different types of sand in the ocean. There's like quartz. I think there's like stuff from sedimentary rock. Um, there are people that studied these materials. They study the different types of grain size, the types of grain and where they are because they're important in terms of, you know, where these things come from and how do they erode away. What did the ocean say to the shore? Nothing. It just waved. What causes a wave? That's a good question. What causes a wave? So on the surface, you ever went to the beach, you see waves forming and crashing. So that's mainly caused by wind. So wind stress or just wind blowing over the surface of the ocean. This causes this like this friction, this kind of like tension between the air and the water. And so if there's enough wind speed that causes the waves to start going from being smooth and, and calm to being very turbulent or rough. And so you start to see waves forming and crashing. And so these are on the surface, but we also have internal waves in the ocean. And so these waves are much, much larger, but you won't really see them. And these waves are kind of caused by changes in like ocean condition when it comes to like uh, salt in the ocean and or temperature. Larger waves are very large and they change based off like turbulence or, or, or mixing in the ocean. It causes mixing in the ocean. How long have oceans been here? I guess to date, uh, oceans have been for about 3 billion years, right after the formation of the Earth, which is about 4 billion years. Um, and so people think that the ocean was formed from just 
condensing of like the atmosphere. So the atmosphere had a lot of water vapor or vapor in the ocean. Eventually, because of the cooling of the earth, that condensed and it formed the oceans. So I think that's kind of the leading hypothesis. And I haven't really heard anything too different. The oceans are interconnected. If you're outside, you see the ocean. I guess from the surface, it looks all the same. And in a sense, interconnected just by, I guess, being part of the earth in a way, right? Um, another way that they're interconnected is by the different like physical aspects of the ocean. So there's one thing called a thermal haline circulation. In a sense, it's a big conveyor belt within the oceans that's able to transport different types of like, you know, salinity and nutrients and whatnot. And it has a big effect on the climate of the ocean. The thermal haline circulation, you have different biomes. And so the Southern Ocean, uh, close to Antarctica, has a different physical properties than the ocean that is in the Northern Pacific or the Southern Pacific. And this is just based off of where they are in terms of landmass and other physical aspects. Why did the whale cross the road? To get to the other tide. <laughs> My name is Alyssa Stoller. I'm from the US originally. I'm currently, I guess, the co-founder of WhaleWise. In short, I'm a whale researcher, which is a pretty great uh, <laughs> job to have. And the reason I did that, in short, is because I've always just loved whales. I've always been fascinated by them and basically wanted to enter a field where I could best protect them in any way that I could. And through that, I found that the best outlet has been kind of a combination of science and education, which is why I'm so excited to be here today. Hi guys, I'm Tom and I'm at the moment a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh and I'm also co-founder of Whalewise. I am Uma. I am seven and I am from Switzerland. How deep can whales swim? So, how deep can whales swim? Well, it depends on the type of whale that you're talking about. So there are about 90 species of whales, dolphins and porpoises, and together we call them cetaceans. But the deepest diving of them all is a really weird, enigmatic, strange whale called the Cuvier's beaked whale. And they can dive up to 2,992 meters deep. So that is nearly two miles deep. And they've actually, a paper came out a couple of months ago that showed that they can stay underwater while they're doing these dives for up to four and a half hours. So it's just totally beyond belief. Now, I guess the question is, why would you bother diving down two miles? It's pitch black. You can't actually see anything at all down there. And the reason is to feed. So Cuvier's beaked whales are part of this quite large group of whales called beaked whales. There are lots of species, we don't really know much about them, but we know that they dive deep and they feed on squid. Now when you normally see a whale feeding, let's say if it's like a killer whale, they'll just grab their food. And let's say if it's like a humpback whale, then engulf their food, they'll open their mouths wide and take in a shoal of fish. Beaked whales are a bit different, they're the oddballs, they suck their food. So they'll find a squid and they'll go and they'll suck it up. And these squid tend to live very deep in the water column, a couple of miles down in canyons and trenches. So yeah, that's how deep a whale can dive. How do whales 
pee. So whales pee pretty much just like we do, except that it's a lot more pee, and it's kind of directly into the ocean. There have been a few times where scientists have actually, and just people watching whales on the sea, have seen whales pee, but it's when they lie on their back and they suddenly see this giant geyser coming out of the ocean. And that, that's whale pee. And the thing that makes it look like a geyser is just that there's so much more pee coming out of a whale than it would be us. To give you an example, a fin whale, which is a huge whale, it's just a bit smaller than a blue whale, can pee about 260 gallons of pee a day. That's a lot of pee. But what makes pee so interesting and so important is even though it might kind of feel funny that if you go for a swim at the ocean, you know you're kind of swimming in whale pee, is that without whale pee, the ocean wouldn't work the same way that it does today. It has a lot of phosphorus and nitrogen. And without those things, the ocean wouldn't run the way that it does. And what's crazy about whales is that they are at the surface, but they also dive down deep and they release that pee all over the ocean. And so it can go to nutrients and organisms and critters that are in the deep and at the surface. And so in summary, we should be really grateful for whale pee. What's the most expensive fish? A goldfish. Hi, my name's Oscar. Why do whales blow out pea shapes? <laughs> I really like this question. I had a lot of fun thinking about how I'd want to answer this. So, those pea shapes are what we call bubble nets. And you're only going to see a bubble net from one species of whale, and that is the humpback whale. So that's the big one that you'll usually see on whale watching boats, jumping and leaping out of the water. And the reason that they blow out these bubble nets is to feed. Now, th this is basically how it works. So humpback whales feed on tiny little organisms. Even though these whales can get up to 15, 16 meters long, 40 tons, they tend to feed on the smallest of fish and then on a little pink crustacean, so kind of a relative of the crab, called krill. And these animals tend to form in large shoals. And the way that humpbacks feed on these is by engulfing an entire shoal at a time. So they'll open their mouth, really wide and they can take up to 20, 30 tonnes of water in a single mouthful and in that they'll have an entire shoal of fish. So if you're a humpback whale, basically you want to get as many fish or as many krill into that single gulp as you can because it takes a lot of energy to open your mouth that wide when you're a big whale. So they use a bubble net. So they start by locating the prey and then they dive down under the shoal and they blow this really precise shape. So essentially it's a big curtain of bubbles. So they open up their blowhole, so this is what they breathe through at the surface, and then blub blub blub, all the bubbles start coming out and they swim forward and around in a circle, and this forms this perfect little curtain of bubbles. Now the important thing here is that the fish and krill will not swim through those bubbles, and that's why we call it a bubble net. So now they're trapped in a pretty small space, and all the humpback whale has to do open its mouth within the net, swim upwards, the fish and krill have nowhere else to go side to side and they're stuck at the surface and then it's easy for the humpback whale to feed on a really concentrated high quality shoal of fish and krill. Now generally when we see this it's single whales so for example we do our work in Iceland and we see a lot of single whales bubble netting but sometimes you'll see them in groups so animals of two 
or three, uh, groups of two or three blowing bubble nets together. And the amazing situation happens in Alaska. And this is where we have up to 20 humpback whales in a single group, all working together to blow this giant bubble net. And then they all benefit from this incredible shoal of fish or krill. Um, and this is actually, so in Alaska, this large bubble netting is coordinated by a single animal. A single animal calls out from the bottom, so they blow the net and then they call out, and then that is a signal for all of the animals to travel upwards and engulf those fish. So yeah, that's a bubble net, that's your P-shape. How do whales swim if they're so heavy? That's another really good question. And in fact, you're right, whales are really, really, really heavy. So the humpback whales we were just talking about can get up to 40 tonnes, the bubble netters. But then if you get to a blue whale, they can be up to 200 tonnes and 30 metres long. They are absolutely massive. But when we're talking about how easy it is for a whale to swim, the important thing isn't so much how they weigh, it's their buoyancy. So when we say buoyancy, we talk about the tendency of an object to float in a liquid. And in this system, we're talking about the tendency of a whale to float in seawater. So let's say we take a stone and a cork, and let's say they're both the same size, and we plunk them in the water. The stone is heavier than the cork, and it's gonna sink. And the cork is lighter than the stone, and it's gonna float. But now let's say we make the cork really big, and we make it so big that actually the cork is as heavy as the stone, that cork is still not going to sink, it's going to still float. And the reason for that is not the weight, it's the density. It's how much weight you have in your object, in your whale, in your stone, in your cork, per volume. So let's think about a whale now. If you're a whale, you don't really want to be like a stone. You don't want to sink straight away because you need to come up to the surface to breathe. And you don't want to be like a cork, you don't want to float too easily because you often need to dive down to get your food. You want to be just in the middle. Now ev evolution has been really clever with this. Um, the body density of pretty much every species of whale is really, really close to the density of seawater. So they're not much denser than seawater and they're not much less dense than seawater. So that means that let's say if a whale is floating at the surface, it doesn't need to put much effort to float there. There's nothing pulling them down significantly because they're about the same density as the seawater. So they can float and rest at the surface. But let's say if that whale wanted to go and dive down to feed on fish, squid, whatever it needs to do down there, then they can dive down because they're not much less dense in the water and they can easily push themselves down. So that's why it's so easy for whales to swim despite being so heavy. Now, one of the main um, features that makes whales sort of light enough or yeah, sort of less dense is the fact that they are very fat. Pretty much every species of whale is pretty fat, um, none more so than something like a bowhead whale or a right whale, which are very slow whales and tend to float a lot at the surface. And fat is less dense than a lot of other tissue types in animals. So for example, fat is much less dense than muscle. And that's what helps them to kind of maintain what we call this neutral buoyancy. What kind of hair do oceans have? Wavy hair. Have marine biologists noticed any differences in the ocean since the beginning of pandemic? 
Well, this is a really interesting question and one I'm pretty excited to answer. In short, yes, at least we think so. So when you're a scientist, one of the main things that you're trying to do is have a study where there's some kind of impact, whether that's positive or negative, if there's an interaction and study it and see how the animal or the environment might have changed. And what you're comparing it to is something called the control. And to make that make a little bit more sense is let's say you have whales in a bay and there's a lot of whale watching happening and you want to understand how those whales behavior might be changing because of the boats. But you can only truly know the answer to that question if you could monitor those whales without the boats. And normally this is a question that's kind of nearly impossible to answer given the circumstances. A lot of scientists do lab-based studies where they can kind of control what happens in the environment. But when you're out in the field, which means you're doing it in kind of real life circumstances, it's nearly impossible to get that until COVID. <laughs> so when the pandemic happened, suddenly there was this massive decrease in human activity. There weren't boats going out as much. There weren't people going out as much. And so there was kind of this mad rush for scientists to study these systems and see, wait, how would they behave without us? Because we wouldn't know that until now. And one of the main things that people were looking at is noise. Um, have the oceans become quieter because of the lacks of humans? It's important because animals use sound in a lot of ways that we do. And whales, for example, rely on sound way more than we do. It's sometimes a murky environment, it's dark, and they need to use sound to kind of find their prey or communicate with each other. As Tom mentioned earlier, when whales or humpbacks, for example, are making these bubble nets, a, usually an animal puts out a call or they make a call altogether. And if their ocean is too noisy, they're not gonna be able to hear that call in the same way. Or if they're just talking to each other, there's these sounds from boats and everything max the calls and they can only make their sounds so much louder. There have been some studies where it shows they, they try to make their calls louder, but I would say it's pretty exhausting to just be screaming all the time. So yeah, it, it's definitely an impact on them. So a quieter ocean is a way that they can talk more to each other and find their food a lot easier. But some good news is when it first started happening is we are seeing more animal sightings and then uh, a reduction of like CO2 emissions, a lot less planes flying, and so we're having less air pollution. But how that has impacted the ocean yet, we're not exactly sure, because the ocean is this great way to, well, I don't know if you would say it's great, but it's a necessary way to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so what scientists think is if they look at how much the ocean has absorbed uh, carbon dioxide or CO2 over time, there's going to be this kind of fingerprint, which is the pandemic, which is this decrease in CO2 absorption. But it's hard to tell now. But I would say, look back in maybe six months or a year or two, these studies take a lot of time to process results and we'll have a better idea. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. What do ghosts like to go swimming? The Dead Sea. <laughs> Draw what you hear.
for listening to Anorak, the happy podcast for kids. Hope you'll come back to listen to some more episodes. Now, a message for the grown-ups. Be sure to stay up to date with our happy podcast for kids by following us on any platforms you listen to podcasts on. And please leave us a rating or even subscribe if you love it that much. Studio Anorak is proudly independent. And to support this podcast and help us make lots more episodes, please visit our website, anorakmagazine.com or simply follow us on Instagram at anorakmag or Facebook and Twitter at anorakmagazine.